Welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Okay, if you have a Bible with you this morning or this afternoon, perhaps you could go to Romans chapter 8 for me, please. Romans chapter 8. And we're continuing our conversation, um, which I understand has been probably the longest conversation I've ever had in any church I've ever been in because I have resisted the temptation of kind of switching things up because I feel... One of the things that's important for us as a community is to do a journey together. We want to do this journey together because we get this teaching and that experience and these encounters. But actually, unless we start to understand that our God every day of our lives is intentional about taking us on an adventure with him and making us the kind of people he can trust with just about all kinds of things he wants to do in and through our lives. Now, if Jesus was to come back today... Okay, let's say that happened tonight. I'm not prophesying, but beware wherever you are at 6 o'clock because that's the hour of his return. No, I'm only kidding. If Jesus was to come back today, do you actually feel like you're ready? Can you turn me down slightly? Do you actually feel like you, you'd be ready for Jesus if he was to come back today? If Jesus was to come back today, do you think, well, I wish I had or I could have done? If Jesus was to come back tonight at 6 o'clock, and he's not, those of you listening on the internet, don't text or write or declare I said that. That's not happening tonight at 6, to my knowledge, but no one really knows when God's coming back. If Jesus was to come back at 6 o'clock tonight, do you think you would have accomplished everything that he had placed in your heart and your life for his purposes? No, and the truth is, in some senses, I'm holding up his return. That's the truth. Because God is waiting for a people to rise, a people to emerge, a people to come to the fore in these very unique, I call them kairos moments. And this is a kairos moment because all kinds of things are happening on the earth. We must press past the disillusionment of society and engage with the reality of the power of his kingdom. Jesus is at work in this world. Somebody say amen to that. And I don't just mean your life. I mean in the world and the cosmic reality of this world, God is at work and he's doing all manner of things. And we're going to come to that in a few moments. We're going to come to some of those things in a few moments. But one of the things I want to just suggest to you is that some of us need to really start recalibrating our lives to that kind of clarity and that kind of hope. The Bible says that hope deferred makes the heart grow faint or sick. In other words, when we stop hoping in Jesus, when we stop expecting God to turn up, when we stop allowing or even recognizing where God is at work in our lives, our hearts, our lives follow suit. They become sick. They become faint. They become weak. And if you go back to the New Testament church, you'll see over and over again, every single day of their lives, they believed that Jesus was about to return. And they lived with that kind of intentionality. They lived with that kind of clarity. And that kind of clarity means that some of the unnecessary distractions of life get laid to one side, and our desire for him and our intentionality to live in relationship with him becomes profoundly real and profoundly clear for us. And so God is at work right now in the church to raise a bunch of people with that kind of clarity. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus is nearer to his return than we have ever, ever, ever lived with or expected in the history of the church Jesus 
Did you know he's coming back? Did you know he's coming for his bride, which is the church? Do you know that we will be caught up with him? And God has purposes and plans in that coming up, being caught up with him for a, a new world and a new order here as a reality for all of humanity to experience. God is at work in our world. And I'm excited about that. Some of you don't look very excited about that. But hopefully by the end of it, we'll turn that frown upside down. And you may be expectant and hope-filled in the name of Jesus. Okay, so I want to talk to you about a subject that we never talk about in church. I want to talk to you about corporate or communal guidance. It would seem to me that as I look across the Old Testament and I look into the New Testament, that there wasn't just an exclusive bunch of people that got to hear or hear or experience what God wanted to do. If you think about it, all of the Israelites stood where Moses stood. They saw what God did. If you take that thought a little bit further and they went into the desert out of a lack of clarity or certainty that God was going to do what he did, all of the Israelites saw the manna and the quail. Not just Moses, not just the elders, not just the people who looked after the tribes, all of God's people. And of course, when God begins to move supernaturally like that, we all have to collectively come together and ask two questions. What is God doing and what must we do as a response to that. And I think for whatever reasons in society, we've made individualistic guidance our priority and we have not opened up the window of corporate guidance to say, what would God be saying to us as a community? And um, I think it's important for us to lean towards that and ask some questions about that. And I think there are lots of models in the New Testament where we see that Jesus is trying to facilitate that as the church begins to form and begin to grow. There was not an exclusive handful of people who knew what God was saying and doing. The body of Christ understood the significant times that they were living in and how they should live according to those times. So let's go to this subject matter. It's a big subject. We won't get it all done today and we will be finished by one o'clock and I'll do my best to keep to target. I'm trying to get better at this. Have you noticed? Yes. Don't be miserable, you lot. Have you noticed? Okay, Romans chapter 8. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul, we're going to read from verses 18 to 21. Listen to this, these phrases. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, just pause for a moment, okay, and ask yourself this question. Is that how I see the world? Because there seems to have been this massive movement globally of people being very aware of their sufferings overtly and persistently caught up with the difficulties of life. Yes? It seems to me like it's a global pandemic that in many, many ways, because we've not understood the significance of what's shifting and changing in our world, we also as a community, the church, have been paralyzed, not energized by what God wants to do amongst us. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. I think we're living in a world where we're more conscious of ourselves. Would you say that's true? I think we're living in a world where individualism has taught us to take care of ourselves a little bit better. You know, um, if you're like me and you've lived for longer than 25 years, 
I can't imagine sitting down with anyone in the generation before me and them talking about their problems. My mom and dad didn't talk about their problems. My mom talked about my dad being her problem. That, that happened. And he sometimes, in a moment of weakness, talked about my mom being his problem. But you know, for all intents and purposes, in spite of the very difficult life that they both lived prior to being together and as a family, as a community, we didn't sit around talking about our problems. That wasn't how I was raised. And in fact, if, if I can be bold with you, we don't have more problems now than they had then. And I'm not propagating this myth that if you deny something is true, then it becomes true. But somehow they had a steely, robust sense of clarity that whatever happened to have to happen that day, they needed to get up and get on with the life that they wanted. No one was coming to make it happen for them. Nobody was going to deliver it to them on a plate. They had to get up and to do something to get the life that they wanted. And in stark contrast to that, okay, so many people are blaming so many people because they haven't had their break. They haven't been discovered. We all think that there's a heavenly Simon Cowell somewhere waiting to discover you. Okay, I want to let you know you've already been discovered. Jesus knows who you are, where you live, what your name is. He knows exactly what he has for you to do. He knows exactly how to get the best for you in your life. Okay, so we've been discovered. We're not waiting for anyone to turn up. But actually, I'm wondering, have we become paralyzed by an over-prioritizing of adversities and difficulties? And I would suggest that that is true. Everyone on the planet identifies with their problems. Many people in the church can testify that they have problems. But where are the people who are living in the promises of God? Where are the people who turn their problem into an opportunity to explore the vast reality of God? Now, which is bigger, your problem or your promise? Which is greater, your difficulty or your God? How big is your God when your problem seems so majestically large? And the thing that you give attention to is the thing that grows. You can worship your problems and not realize it. You can be so preoccupied with your problems, you don't realize that right in the middle of them, this truth is your promise. Life is hard, but God is good. Now, I didn't get enough amens, so I'm going to go back over that. And that's the truth. That's the balancing act. Life is hard. Has anybody found life is hard? You think you're suffering now for Jesus, don't you? Wait until the end times come. Life is hard. It's hard. Some days I don't want to get out of bed. Some days I don't want to do things. Some days I don't want to engage with the world. Some days I feel overwhelmed. Life is hard, but God is good and I've got to decide whether my problem is larger in my heart and in my life than his presence and his power and if I'm focused on my problem I will not be able to find his presence or his power you have one set of internal eyes if they're looking at this they can't look at that that's why the apostle David uses this phrase he says be magnified O God 
The Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament how we're meant to live in the midst of adversity. He says, I fix my eyes on Jesus. Why? Because you and he, human alike, could have a tendency to be looking at all kinds of things and feel paralyzed and unable to continue living for God. And if I would suggest something to you that I think has been a pandemic in society since all that happened with COVID and all of that is we have become overly preoccupied with our problems. And um, people have a list of things that they're living with difficulty in. And so consequently, the joy of the Lord, his strength, his power, his provision, his promises have to come somewhere further down the list. And I don't know what you feel about this. Judging by your faces, it's not going down too well. But the reality is this. We have to make a decision. Do I want to live with an overwhelming sense of my problems? Or do I want to come this side of the completed and finished work of Jesus and start to understand and learn and grapple with the fact that I am more than a conqueror through Christ who strengthens me. I have to move away from a preoccupation with all that isn't right and fix my eyes on the one who is perfect and who is always right. And as I fix my eyes on Jesus, I tell you what, your problems will get smaller and your promises will get larger. As you fix your eyes on Jesus, you will not be paralyzed by the difficulties that you're facing. You'll see God in every circumstance and you live above those things and you live from a place and a position in Christ of overcoming. Anybody excited about that possibility? Well, could you tell your face because the message has not reached there. We, we have this wonderful invitation right now in the church to step away from preoccupation with sufferings because Paul says they're not worth comparing. Listen, in other words, if I was to work all this out from a finished position, these things that I go through, they are nothing in comparison to the glory that will be revealed in us. How does that glory become apparent? Let me tell you, through adversity. How does that glory become manifest through a little bit of difficulty? You see, the church wants to live in the glory of God. Jesus was glorified after he died. <laughs> There's a clue. And he rose again. And the Father has seated him in heavenly places with him. You can't have glory... You can't live in glory without adversity. There's a need for us to understand how the, the, the kingdom works. And that is simply this, that in my difficulty, in my trials, there are triumphs. There are treasures. And I have to learn how to step away from just wanting everything easy and finding it. You know, we all want to live in the glory of God. But the glory of God is formed in the adversities of life. So now it makes sense why you've had so much adversity. That makes sense of the struggles and the hardships. And Jesus even said this to his people, you will have them. Jolson, they're going to come. In a few weeks time, that wonderful baby, that gift from God will be up all hours of the day. And I'm not prophesying. I'm not prophesying. <laughs> and when you drag your weary bones out in the morning, you'll be thinking, Jesus, where are you? Where are, you, where are you, Jesus? Remember, 
that in adversity, God is forming his glory in you. That job that you went after, you didn't get. You thought it was the person didn't like you. God held you back because what he wants to do inside of you is greater than any position man could ever give you. He kept you where he needed to keep you because he wanted to do something so amazing in you that it would matter not what environment you stand in. Whether there's kings, palaces, wealth or money, you would still have this truth and this reality. Greater is he who is in me than anything that happens in this world around me. You see, we need to understand how God does what he chooses to do in us. And if you think glory will come easily, if you think you're going to slip into revival, it'll just happen. You'll accidentally trip up and suddenly you'll be in renewal and restoration. I've got to tell you, the good news is that's not the way God works. And he takes the journey of our life, the adverse circumstances, the difficulties that we face, and he produces his glory in us so that he can do something great through us. That takes me to verse 19. Look at it with me, please. Now, you're sitting in here, and there are people outside waiting for these types of people to rise in society. It says, verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the politicians to come. Sorry, did I misread that? <laughs> All creation waits with eager expectation for whom? The children of God to be revealed. So this isn't just your story. All of that difficulty, all of that adversity, all of those things that cause you to think that life is hard are allowed to happen to you so that you arrive at this place. Oh yeah, life is hard, but my God is so good. My God is able to do immeasurably beyond anything. I, oh, I know that there's suffering here, and I know that there's problems there, but, but listen to me. The God who lives within me has greater glory for all of those who are around me to experience. But if it doesn't do its work in you, it can't do its work through you. So while you're squirming and you're trying to get out of difficult times, I would suggest that you rejoice. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Today, God is doing something good in me. Okay, and the reason for that is he wants to do something great through me. We're singing our songs. We're preaching our sermons. We're talking about Jesus. But actually, in the houses, in just about every part of this city and throughout the whole world, there are a whole bunch of people who are saying, who will show us what's right? Who will lead us to life? Who will cause our hearts to be hope-filled again? And we've identified that the politicians with the best will in the world, they don't carry that mandate. That isn't what God has placed on their lives to do. The answer to much of the world's problems is for the church to rise. It's for us to wake up to the reality that the overcoming Jesus inside of us wants to move through us to rewrite the story of humanity. God is at work in the church to get us to the place where he can be at work through the church. In the last couple of weeks, you may or may not have heard this already, a couple of young men in our church have taken it upon themselves, the audacity of such people, 
to go out onto the streets in Northfield and in Selly Oak and talk to people about Jesus. If you were to talk to these individuals, you would find that they're not overtly huge, charismatic individuals. They're not the kind of person that finds public speaking easy or talking to strangers will be a challenge to them. But something happened in their heart and, and that something caused them to go out on a Saturday and even sometimes in the week and start preaching on the streets of Northfield. And in fact, one of them, he's not with us for this service, his name is Hamish, he told us yesterday that he went down to Selly Oak Park and stood outside Coster on a bench and started preaching. Now, if you met this man, you would think, no. Now, I could imagine some people finding that easy, but this, this, this individual is very reserved and very kind of considered in the way that he lives his life, and yet a boldness has come upon him because the Spirit of God is at work in him, and he started to understand that whatever adversity he's been through, there is a greater glory that God can do through him that will affect people around him. And I think yesterday, with Choby and some other people, some young men in our church, I think Max and who else? Isaac. Nine people give their hearts to Jesus on the streets of Northfield. Nine, ten, seven. Oh, I always exaggerate, seven. It's the perfect number. It's the perfect number. Seven. Seven people. This young man that preached outside Costa a couple of weeks ago on a week evening, he stood on a bench and he noticed as he was preaching that there was somebody listening intently from a distance. He goes over and he talks to this young man and that young man gave his heart to Jesus. Feeling empowered by what the Spirit was doing in him, he decided to go and talk to some young lads that were playing football. And I think there was about eight of them. Forgive me if the numbers aren't right. I won't go to hell for getting one wrong. Okay. But, but the reality is eight young boys gave their hearts to Jesus that night. And nine, including the young man that was sitting listening. God, God is trying to tell the church, trying to awaken the church to this truth that all of creation has been waiting on you. Everywhere you go, there's a whole bunch of people who are wanting someone to tell them something that brings them hope. In every context, whether it's the bus or your office or your community or your family, God has set you amongst these people because you are the answer to the mystery of life. What am I here for? What is this all about? And when they look out into the world and they see no answers but people polishing their speeches and prioritizing their own kingdom and empire, it's time for the church to recognize we're living in a Kairos moment because you have the words of eternal life written into the very fabric of your being and God is going to raise his people up in this hour to take the message of Jesus, the only one that brings hope and peace and salvation and freedom. There is no other organization on this planet that carries that anointing, that carries that mandate. You are it. I am it. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So God, in his great wisdom, has kept things under a blanket, under the radar. Now, I know the church really wants to be famous sometimes. You know, I think if I listen to what people say, you know, God, we want, we want all of our community to know we're here. God, we want... 
Motive is everything in the kingdom of God. And God took a submersive bunch of ordinary broken people and he changed the world through them. Do you think the plan is any different? This is not about ministry celebrity. This is about ordinary people living in the victory that is there in Jesus Christ and turning up in society to rewrite stories. This is hidden from the learned and the wise, but revealed to the humble and the pure. God is doing something deep in his church. He can do something great through his church. We are standing in a Kairos moment where God is wanting to lead the church out into society where he can use our lives to produce new realities for people. This is a very important moment to pay attention. And one of the reasons I think we're not getting it is because we don't have very good prayer lives. Our prayer is shockingly inferior to our ancestors. The average Christian prays for three to five minutes each day, and, and that's an average. You think about that. Okay, and what we pray about is often our own lives. Oh God, give me. Oh God, could you do? Oh God, could you change? If you're rehearsing the invitation and it's about you, let me tell you, that's about to change because God is going to open up, open up for you a perspective on society that will cause you to be praying for nations you can't even pronounce the name. God is going to bring you into a place where you come into partnership with the one who is praying because Jesus is the great high priest and he's interceding night and day for the nations. Okay, and you're going to catch something of his heart and you're going to be praying for people you don't even like. You're going to be praying for people you've never met. You're going to be dreaming dreams about a city you don't even want to live in. Hallelujah. You're going to be caught up because your prayer life has been about you. But if you open the door of your heart and say, God, show me what to pray. Teach me how to pray, Jesus. Lead me how to pray. You will find that God has dreams. And God shares those secrets with his people. But if you're preoccupied with yourself, you are not going to hear the dreams of the Father's heart. He will not share them with somebody who will utilize them for their own gain. He wants you to serve him and pray. Look at verse 21. It says, the creation... In hope, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom, and look what that freedom looks like, and glory of whom? Us. God's holy people. I think the message puts it this way. Today, heaven and earth are on their tiptoes, waiting for the emergence of a spirit-led, spirit-filled, spirit-empowered people. Another writer writes it this way, all creations watching expectantly for the springing up and forth of the disciplined, the freely gathered, sacrificially oriented people who know the life of God and the power made available in his kingdom. And I want to tell you, it's happened before and it can happen again. God can do something great in this hour. In the book of Habakkuk, it says, I have heard of your glorious deeds, Lord. Renew them in this hour. Let me take you to Mark chapter 2. We've got 10 or so minutes left. I'm going to read from verses 18 quickly. It says this, that now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some of them came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples 
and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not. In other words, this is a question about holiness and reverence. And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Why would Jesus answer with that? In other words, Jesus is saying the goal of fasting and the goal of prayer is to see the return of Jesus Christ and the fullness of his kingdom. And if he's already here with his people, there's no need to be fasting in that way. He says then, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. And this is the bit I want us to sit in for a minute. It says, that time, that time when Jesus is about to return, that time when the church begins to wake up to the reality of that, that truth, that time whenever everything in the world is shifting around and the only thing that's solid is what, what God says is true, that time, that time when we've given up on our procedures and our you know, presumed ideologies about how this works and we've come with humility to God and said, God, will you build your church? Will you do something great in the hearts of your people? That time when all paradigms and ways of living and thinking no longer work and we're trying to shoehorn a new day and a new reality and a new world into an old paradigm and it doesn't work. That time, at that time, on that day, Jesus says that no one will sow a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst and the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. When the pandemic hit, Christian leaders around the world did everything in their power to keep business going as usual. They did online meetings. They found creative ways to receive tithes and offerings. They did small groups through Zooms. I'd never heard of Zoom. Had you ever heard of Zoom before the pandemic? It probably existed for years. It was not a platform that I was ever connected to. We became scattered as a result of what was happening in our world. We became isolated from our brothers and sisters. We became paranoid, I suppose, that gathering together would create this opportunity for the virus to destroy and to kill. And we'd seen enough evidence on the television to suggest that those were not wise decisions to make, although I know enough Christians to know that some believed it wasn't happening and wasn't real and others thought it was indeed the mark of the beast and we shouldn't have the injection and somewhere between those two crazy opposing points is probably the reality of what was happening in our world but one thing became very clear to church leaders and that was this the church as we had known it had changed we could no longer rely on the goodwill of people turning up in meetings. In fact, sometimes we were watching people join our gatherings online who had never been part of the church assembly. Up until that point, they'd never even engaged. It's almost like we lost some, but we gained others, and people started to gather around. A moment like this, and there's some watching online this morning, and they've continued to do that, and that's up to them. While that was happening... In our world, God was doing something, something that we did not like and did not want. God was deconstructing the church as we understood it because it was not and could not be flexible enough or available enough for what he wanted to do in the future. We had become rigid, restricted, sometimes religious, and often or not completely foolish in thinking because we 
did certain practices that we were living in certain realities. And one thing that was really obvious in the pandemic is our clear lack of discipleship. We had created a culture of people who turned up at church, but actually when they didn't have all the props of the worship team and 20 people chasing them on a regular basis, they found that their own relationship with Jesus began to fade and in many ways became quite concerning. In stark contrast to the demise of that stuff, on another place, in another time, in another space, lots of young people were using these platforms to gather together to pray. And a prayer movement began in the pandemic. And many people were testifying that they were praying more. There's nothing like a little need to help you pray a little bit clearer, is there? They were praying more to Jesus. And they began to find Jesus in their front room and experience Jesus in their day-to-day -day living. No longer did all the props of church and all the ministries that hold everything up, they were not available. And we had to find real, raw Jesus. Jesus, right in the midst of the reality of how we were living our lives. But as soon as that was finished, we have gone back to some of the things that we have relied upon. And let me tell you some of them. One is this. I've been in so many meetings where I'm the only person who prays. And I want to ask you a question. Is that okay? So we say to people, let's pray about this. Silence hits the room. Why? We haven't taught you how to pray. We haven't shown you how to talk with God while others are listening. That is true. But actually, the truth is, we probably haven't been praying. And so when you're put on the spot, or someone asks you to lead in prayer, or open up in prayer, many of us have this default in our minds. We are spectators, not partakers. We haven't come here for you to have any expectations upon us, Pastor. Okay, we have expectations on you. We want you to be on time. We'd like you to be thinner. We'd like you to not talk so much. We'd like you to not be super vocal. We've got all these expectations on you, but heaven forbid the pastor should have any expectations on the congregation to rise in the anointing that God's placed on their lives. And what we lack in prayer became evident in the pandemic. And yet, at the same time, God began to rebuild something that is deeply profound, and people are gathering all over this world. As a result of adversity, they are experiencing His glory. More people are coming to faith in this hour than have ever happened on the planet. Just because you don't see it on your doorstep, do not believe it's a lie. More people are coming into the kingdom of God than ever before in the history of the church. Countless tens of thousands of people all over the world are finding Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In spite of us. In spite of us. Worship has become a very odd thing. We said this earlier on. I talked to my friends, my team, my tribe, the worship team. I'm part of this community. I love to worship God. But you know... I'm in meetings all the time, and if we don't sing the right song, you're leaving the church. There are some people in this room who want to be contemplative and meditative. You can go home and do that. You don't need people around you. You'll be all right. It's going to be okay. When we gather together, we rely heavily on this group of people to bring the anointing. What is that? Where did you get that thought? You have an anointing. Oh, should I go home? You have an anointing. You have a call on your life to worship. You are the worship leader you've been waiting for. 
You are the one who carries the song of the Lord. It's great to have the team and they help most of the time. <laughs> most of the time they do. That's what they aim to do. But we rely if they don't get the right song, if we're not picking the right melody lines, if we're not saying the right words. You have become a congregation of people who critique what other people do. And you're waiting for something to happen here before something happens here. Can you hear me, church? And God is deconstructing that. At the same time, around this world, people are gathering to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. And there was an Ashby revival where there were a handful of students who were not professional musicians, where the Spirit of God breathed life on a whole bunch of people who came with their own song. They came with their own story. They came to give glory to God. Can you see what's happening? Are you clear what's happening in the world? God is taking away something so he can produce something better. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you. You know exactly what you're doing. And before you go in your head to this space, oh, he's on one. I'm not on one. I could never tell you how important it is for me to stand in this pulpit today and tell you these things because there is so much confusion in the body of Christ. You cannot have the new if you're trying to hold on to the old. New wine requires new wineskins. And those new wineskins are structures and particular ways in which the Holy Spirit is wanting to move in this hour. And we have to find them and we have to commit ourselves to them and we have to flourish in them. Those are the things God sets before us. Let me tell you what's happening. One of these new wineskins. About 30 years ago, the Pentecostal church, which is a worldwide denomination of people from every tribe and tongue, celebrated this reality that they carried the power of the Holy Spirit. And our brothers and sisters from the Anglican church, who we'd always thought were a little less exuberant or passionate, suddenly started to see a move of the Holy Spirit. And out of that movement, that charismatic movement, came all kinds of expressions of the kingdom of God that when we looked at them, we thought that's the same as we believe, but they're not in the same denomination as us. And things like Alpha began to emerge. Do you know there's hardly any nation in this world where Alpha, the model of trying to reach people with the good news of Jesus, isn't working well? God is not looking for a denomination. That's way too small a vision for God. God is looking for a people from amongst the people. And you will watch, as I have watched over the years, the surprises as he brings different streams together for his purposes. These three things remain. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I think some of the movements of the Spirit we've been seeing over these years have been a movement of love. The Toronto Blessing was a movement of love, the Father's heart for his people, and people began to gather around and move in it. Right next to that was a movement of faith, and that's the movement of those who are praying and interceding for the return of Jesus Christ. They, they know with an urgency that Jesus is about to return, and they want to be ready as a people for all that God wants to be uh, for them. They don't want to be the virgins who forgot the oil. They want to be the ones who brought the oil and the lamp. Prayer and intercession is their mandate. And then there's another group of people, the hope people, and those are Sorry, that's the whole people. The faith people are, are African brothers and sisters who come and teach us how to walk in the faith and clarity that is necessary in a world so full of confusion. And God is bringing these great three streams together. 
Because those three things will usher. A three-standard cord cannot be broken. They will usher in the return of Jesus Christ. God is gathering people from different denominations and different streams for his purposes. And what will emerge from that is an apostolic church. And that's a church, in a nutshell, who is so full of love and passion for Jesus. And their lives are filled and led by the Holy Spirit. On the slide... I'm going to talk to you about what that church will look like. That church is you, by the way, and me. The first thing that's being reestablished on the earth is this, the gift of apostolic. Go to the next slide for me, please. Apostolic endeavor. For the longest time in the last 50 years, we as a people have been frightened of the term apostle. We have seen the abuses that some people have attached to that kind of thinking and that kind of living, and we have done everything in our power to detangle ourselves from them. Apostles breeze in on airplanes and breeze out, having a claim that they have changed the world. And we've watched with curiosity what's real about this, but God is raising up an apostolic people that are servants, full of humility, but passionate to see the world transformed for Jesus. There is a movement amongst the body of Christ in this hour that's completely radicalizing the church. And no longer are we waiting for somebody to come. We are the ones that are going. God is raising this house up to be a church across the city for his great pleasure. I don't get any more money. We won't get any more claim. It's not about empire building. It's about kingdom extension. And in this house, God is going to awaken people with dreams and visions for the marketplace, for, for commerce, for industry, for the arts. God is going to awaken people. You're here. Some of you are here. Welcome. Good to have you on board for this great season. This is going to be a church that goes. And by default, that means we can't stay. We are all on mission. We are all invited to the bigger picture of what God wants to do. And some of you look horrified, but I'm really excited about that. So something's opening up apostolically over the church, particularly in Europe. It's already evidence in other parts of the world. The second thing that will come along is that a raise of the prophets. God is going to bring forth people who know his will. Now, I know that some of you say we have his will written down in the Bible. Yes, we do. But to actualize that, we need God to speak. You know, God has a plan for Birmingham. You are miserable today. God has a plan for Birmingham. Why would you not want to know what it was? You've been so caught up with finding his plan for your life, you fail to realize that the same tools that you use to discover that are given to you so you can discover what God wants for people. God has a plan for the United Kingdom. Don't turn the telly on and get despondent. God is at work and he's alive and he's doing something in this nation. Don't allow the propaganda of the enemy to destroy the victory that shows in Jesus Christ. Where are the prophets amongst us? Where are they who, who hear the voice of God and know the strategy of heaven? We need you to speak. And we need you to speak to us as a community. Third thing God is releasing, and we've already seen evidence of that, evangelists. In the last few months in this church, we've attracted, I don't know why, because we're not particularly evangelistic, we've attracted about three to four people who are called to evangelism. Do you think that's accidental, or has God brought people amongst us to help us move beyond the building into the fullness he has for the city? Nothing in the kingdom of God is accidental. And then we have the one gift that you all love the most. This is your favorite gift, pastors. Your favorite gift of all the gifts that exist in the body of Christ, this is the one we like the most because they make us feel loved. 
And the pastoral gift is the reflection of the compassionate heart of God. We would be nothing without it. But it's not the sum total of what God wants to do. God wants you to be loved, but he wants you to be fulfilled. God wants you to know that his affection is certain for you, but he wants you to know that the destiny he's placed before you is down to you and him to work out through prophetic and apostolic endeavor. We don't need one of these above the others. We need them all. They are the full counsel of God. They are the, 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 the characteristics and the, and the wonderful nuances of the person of Jesus. And so while we all like the pastoral one because it pats us on the back and allows us to sleep during the sermon, you need the prophet to speak and you need the apostle to go. You need the evangelist to tell us there's a bigger picture here than just having a great meeting. We have a city waiting for you to turn up. And then the teachers, they inform and they instruct us. Now stand for me, please. We've gone five minutes over. I'm sure Jesus won't smite me. He's called some first to be apostles. Where are those in the room and those watching online who are so fidgety? You can never stay one place too long. Where are the ones who see the world and all its fullness and think I must have some connection with that? I need to get out. I need to get out more. I need to see more. I need to go more. Where are those people? Where are the entrepreneurs and the dreamers? And the people that realize this huge cosmic picture of God is far greater than the sum total of one place or one people. Where are those people? And I call you to the front in Jesus' name. You don't have to come out of your seat. I call you to the front in Jesus' name. I call you to visibility in Jesus' name in this house. I pray that you would become in many, many ways an example to us all of how high, how wide, how deep, how rich, and how long the love of God truly is. Where are the kingdom carriers who will not rest until that kingdom is extended, till everybody's touched by something that's good from heaven? Where are those people who cannot just sit and settle but have to be pioneers? Where are the provocateurs who need to get out of the building as soon as the sermon's over because they want to get on with the life that God has given them and they want to live it to their fullest extent? I call you forth in Jesus' name. And those who hear the voice of God, Prophets, where are you? Give me a wave. Some of you are here. Some of you are coming. Where are the prophets here? If you don't know who you are, I can speak to you. I call you out of hiding. Come and take your rightful place in this community, in this congregation. We need to hear what the Father has to say to us. I call you away from pain and discomfort and rejection, I call you right to the center of the purposes and the plans of God. I call you to a space and a place that is safe for you to speak. And I call you to release the gift that the Father has placed upon you. For we need to hear from heaven what his heart wants and what direction he wants us to go in. 
I break down all of the barriers that you've placed around yourself to protect you from leaders and other people. And I release you to life. I release you to fullness. I release you to be a blessing to the big picture that God wants to bring forth on the earth. Come on out of hiding. It's time. Release your tongue in the name of Jesus Christ. You've been tongue-tied for the longest time. I release it in the name of Jesus Christ. And I say, speak, 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 speak the heart of God to his people, for we need to know the evangelists, those who will and cannot resist the temptation of gossiping the good news of Jesus to others, I pray for a fresh anointing over your heart right now. May you go with fire in your bones and speak life and bring freedom and liberty. May your conversations be associated with signs and wonders and manifestations of the kingdom of God. And may you win souls for Jesus. Run, 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 run to your appointed place and time because God is going to do something amazing. And this is the one, did you know, this is the one that if you do a straw poll in the church as to which ministry most people in the congregation feel called to, interestingly enough, what do you think it is? Pastoral ministry. Why? Because we have been pasteurized for the last 50 years. And everybody knows what pastoral ministry looks like. We're not frightened of pastoral ministry. And if you would say, and I've been in a few contexts these last few weeks where people are doing this. They're asking the questions. What is the main orientation of every congregation? And care is right there as the highest point. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's absolutely great. But if you have a pastor leading your church, you will have a problem because there will be no goal. There will be stay. And prophecy will become dangerous because you don't want people to be upset. See, pastors by default restrict the growth of their churches because they can't care for everybody individually. And I just release the gift of pastor, the compassion of God over his people right now. And all of us are nodding and saying amen because that's the one we want. That's the one we like. That's the one that's the safest. And that's the one that everybody already knows. But Lord God, let it not just be as we have known it. Let us be like the good shepherd who takes his sheep out into the fields because no true shepherd keeps his sheep in a pen 24 hours a day. And teachers, I release you in the name of Jesus Christ. And you know what, church? I just tell you this. You need to hear this. You already are all of these things. You are apostolic. You are prophetic. You are evangelistic. You are pastoral. And you are a teacher. And in every way, with the smallest nuances of how those things vary in individuals' lives. That is why God is raising a people who work and operate in just about every which way possible. Why? That's the new wineskin. The new wineskin that will accommodate the new wine. So one last prayer for you. I'm sorry, I'm 10 minutes over. You can punch me in the face at the end of the service, but you have to be quick because I've been running from people for years. Okay. Lord Jesus, I've done my best to share from the gift that you've called me to and anointed me for. I've done my best to share what I see happening in the world around me, what I see you doing in the church about me. And Lord, I ask in the name of Jesus, you would create a new wineskin, an apostolic wineskin, so that you can pour out the new wine. And if that means a change in the way we structure things or how we perceive things or how we engage with a fivefold ministry, we give you permission, Lord, to use every one of those wonderful nuances of your character and your power to demonstrate, Lord, that this is a day when all of creation doesn't have to wait too much longer because the sons and daughters of God are about to be revealed. 
Now bless us in the name of the Father, the Son, and fill us with the Holy Spirit, Lord, as we step into our world. Let the journey and adventure begin. In Jesus' name, amen.